This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, I'm Dr. Caitlin Kahn, and I'm an assistant professor of biology at Berry College in Georgia. And today I'm going to introduce you to some amazing plants that I've been studying since I was in graduate school. These plants are amazing because they're parasitic, so they steal resources from other plants. And here you can see three examples of parasitic plants, but you'll soon be familiar with many more. Throughout today's lecture, we'll focus on three different learning objectives. The first is to explore parasitic plants within the broad context of parasitism. Next, we'll identify common adaptations among different groups of parasitic plants. And then we'll discuss the range of host dependence that we observe among different parasitic plants. And we'll also have three key concepts today. So the first is symbiotic relationships or long-term interactions between members of different species. The second key concept is convergent evolution, which happens when similarities evolve independently in different groups of organisms. And the third key concept is trait reduction, which is the loss of genes, processes, or structures that we commonly observe among parasites. So let's dive into that first key concept right away. As you just heard, symbiotic relationships are long-term interactions between members of different species, and these interactions persist across generations. These symbiotic relationships can have different outcomes for the organisms involved, depending on the type of relationship that we're talking about. So here we have an example of a symbiotic relationship that's beneficial for both members. We have a plant, specifically a legume, and we're looking at its roots. And if you look where the white arrow is pointing, you'll see a nodule, and you can see other nodules in the roots here as well. And inside these nodules, there are bacteria that take nitrogen from the atmosphere and convert it into a form that the plant plants can use. And in exchange for this service, the bacteria get resources from the plant. So again, this is a symbiotic relationship in which both members benefit. In some symbiotic relationships, one partner benefits while the other may be neither helped nor harmed. And a commonly cited example of this is the relationship between bromeliads and frogs. Bromeliads are mostly tropical plants, and they often hold water among their leaves, and some frogs will lay their eggs in the water held by bromeliads, and their tadpoles will hatch and mature there. And it's often thought that this symbiosis is beneficial for the frogs, but doesn't really have an impact on the bromeliads. And still other symbiotic relationships can be beneficial for one member and harmful to the other. So consider mistletoe. In this picture, mistletoe looks like the clusters of green up in the branches of the tree. Mistletoe lives in trees and it physically attaches itself to the trees and it steals resources. So mistletoe is indeed a parasitic plant. Mistletoe doesn't usually kill its hosts, but heavy infestation can be harmful to the health and development of a tree. 
So these three examples of symbiosis that we just discussed fall into three different categories. With mutualism, both partners benefit. With commensalism, one partner benefits and the other isn't impacted. And with parasitism, one member benefits at the expense of another. Now, throughout this lecture, there will be some questions written in blue, and whenever you see one, I encourage you to pause your video and take a few minutes to consider the answer. So the first question is this, besides these three examples of symbiosis that we just discussed, what other examples can you think of of mutualism, commensalism, and parasitism? Now let's move on to learning objective one, which is to explore parasitic plants within the broad context of parasitism. Parasitism is found across the tree of life. So bacteria are parasitic if they take resources from a host. And a well-known example is Listeria monocytogenes, which can cause illness in humans who ingest food that's contaminated by it. Animals can be parasitic, so think of the worms that live inside the gastrointestinal system of humans, pets, and farm animals. There are many well-known examples of parasitic protists, and one is Leishmania, which is transmitted by biting sandflies and can make people pretty sick. Parasitic fungi include the smut fungus, which uses important crops, namely grasses and sedges, as a host. And as you know by now, plants can be parasitic. The parasitic plant that you see here is called Trifasaria versicolor, and it doesn't look that unusual for a plant, but underground it attaches itself to host plants and steals resources. So now let's focus specifically on parasites in the plant kingdom and let's discuss a few remarkable examples of parasitic plants. This parasitic plant is one of my favorites and it's commonly called the Australian Christmas tree because it produces these beautiful orange blooms around December. It attaches to host plants underground using specialized invasive structures, and sometimes those invasive structures mistake inanimate objects for host plants. For example, this parasitic tree has been found attached to underground power cables. Our next remarkable parasitic plant is Raphalesia arnoldi, or corpse flower, and it produces the largest flower of any plant species. It's beautiful, but it's called corpse flower because it smells like a rotting corpse, and this smell attracts insect pollinators. This huge flower doesn't last long, and in fact, the corpse flower plant spends most of its life inside of a host. And when it finally emerges, it lacks many of the structures that we typically associate with plants, like stems, leaves, and roots. And the final remarkable parasitic plant that we'll discuss here is unfortunately remarkable in its negative impact on agriculture. This is Striga hermonthica, or witchweed, and in this picture, it's the plant with the pink flowers. Striga species parasitize grass crops usually, like corn, which is what's shown in this picture, or rice, and Striga species cause billions of dollars of yield losses every year. 
Striga outbreaks are very difficult to control for a number of different reasons. First, a single striga plant can produce tens of thousands of tiny, easily dispersible seeds, and those seeds can remain dormant in the soil for years if necessary, and they only germinate when they detect a nearby host. Shortly after germination, they attach to that host, and by the time they become visible above the soil surface, damage has already been done. Now, we call parasitic plants that attack crops or other plants cultivated by humans parasitic weeds, and Striga species are some of the most destructive parasitic weeds in the world. Different groups of parasitic plants have evolved different ways to attach to a host. Most of the parasites that we'll talk about today attach directly to a host, but mycoheterotrophs are different because they go through a fungal intermediate. So mycoheterotrophs connect themselves to a mycorrhizal fungus that's usually in a mutualism with a non-parasitic plant. So the fungus becomes an unwitting middleman, involuntarily shuttling resources from its mutualistic, non-parasitic plant partner to the parasite. The mycoheterotrophs shown here are all orchid species, and in fact, many orchids and many other plant species as well are mycoheterotrophic at some point in life. But most of the parasites we'll talk about connect directly to a host. They're called hostorial parasites, and that's because the specialized invasive structure that they use to get inside of a host is called a hostorium. And hostorial parasitic plants are quite diverse. They include the familiar mistletoe, the bizarre looking plant in the middle known as jackal food, and the parasitic weeds and their less destructive relatives. One one of which is shown on the right. Now here we have a phylogeny of angiosperms or flowering plants and this phylogeny comes from Professor Dan Nickrent who maintains the Parasitic Plant Connection website. Check it out for more information on and great photos of parasitic plants. So in this phylogeny, we're seeing a tree-like structure that shows us the evolutionary history of the plant groups labeled on it. And any plant groups labeled in red include hostorial parasites. You'll notice that some of these red groups are not that closely related to other red groups. So it's pretty intuitive that in those distantly related groups of parasites, parasitism would have evolved independently. But in some other cases, these red groups are pretty closely related to other red groups, and it's a little harder to tell whether parasitism evolved independently in those groups or whether it was inherited from a common ancestor. But scientists have taken a closer look at each of the groups labeled in red and determined that parasitism did indeed evolve independently in each of those groups. And when a similarity or a trait like parasitism evolves independently in different groups, that's called convergent evolution. And that's our second key concept in this lecture. But why has parasitism evolved so many times among plants? Well, to start to address this question, think about the community of plants that you would typically find in a forest. Most of them are in competition with one another for access to resources. 
So parasitic plants may have an advantage because instead of battling it out with other plants, they can just steal from somebody who has already obtained resources. So in that sense, at least for parasitic plants, cheating is an alternative to competing. So pause and ask yourself this question. What are some of the resources that plants are typically competing for? And now focus on the parasitic plant on the right side of this slide. This is called Canophilus americana, and it's a small plant. It stands less than a foot tall, but its hosts are huge. They're oak trees. So relative to non-parasitic understory plants, what advantage might Canophilus gain by parasitizing large hosts like oak trees? Now, an answer to the question of why parasitism has evolved so many times among plants may be found in the ecological principle of competitive exclusion. And this principle tells us that two species cannot coexist in the long run if they have the exact same ecological niche. So they have to evolve different ways to interact with their environment, different ways to obtain and utilize resources if they're going to coexist in the long run. So if parasitic plants are using a host to get their resources and non-parasitic plants are getting resources for themselves, then those species have indeed evolved different ecological niches and can persist together over the long run. So we've talked about one major example of convergent evolution, and that's the evolution of parasitism across the tree of life and in the plant kingdom. And now let's talk about some common adaptations that have evolved convergently among different groups of parasitic plants. This is our second learning objective. So here you see two images and they represent parasitic plants from groups that independently or convergently evolved parasitism. And one adaptation that has evolved convergently in these groups is a way to sense a host. So at the top, we have a parasite called daughter and it picks up on nearby hosts when it detects metabolites that those hosts are releasing into the air. At the bottom, we have a parasitic plant from the Orobancaceae family. And for some parasites in this family, host detection has to happen before seed germination. So it's usually happening underground when those parasite seeds pick up on hormones released by host plants. So these host detection mechanisms are different in the two groups of parasites shown here, but they serve a similar purpose, which is to connect the parasitic plant with its host. And of course, if hostorial parasitism has evolved independently among plants, then hostoria themselves have evolved independently as well. So on the top, you see hostoria from daughter, and they are penetrating the stems of a host plant. In the Orobancaceae, the Hostoria connect the parasites to a host's roots. So again, the Hostoria are different in these two groups, but have evolved convergently. So now let's take a look at an amazing video of one of those parasites, daughter, as it goes through its life cycle. This video comes from the lab of Dr. Jim Westwood, who is a professor at Virginia Tech. And you'll see a time lapse of daughter's entire life cycle, really. 
So here it's germinating and the parasite seedlings are growing up above the surface of the soil. Pretty soon you'll see them seeking out a host. And remember that for daughter, host detection happens when the parasite picks up on those metabolites that the host plant is releasing into the air. So once daughter finds a host, it's going to coil itself around that host plant. You can see that up close right here. The host plant in this video is tomato. So daughter is wrapping itself around the tomato and now you can see it forming hostoria. They look like swellings that are growing inward from the daughter toward the stem of that tomato host. And those hostoria will indeed invade the host plant's tissues and set up a connection so that the daughter can steal resources. The daughter continues growing on its tomato host and pretty soon we're going to zoom out for a bigger picture view of daughter interacting with its host. So here we have the daughter plant seeking out more of its tomato host. And by the end of the video, you'll see that those potted tomato plants are completely covered by the daughter. So clearly the daughter has been quite successful in its host seeking and its attachment to and parasitism of the tomato hosts. Now we've started to address this question already, but pause your video for a minute and ask yourself what traits parasitic plants share. Besides the ones we've discussed already, can you make hypotheses about other traits that parasitic plants might have in common? Well, we've already talked about the invasive hostorium, and it turns out that parasitic plants from different groups have, in some cases, convergently evolved reduced or absent structures like leaves and roots, and have convergently lost photosynthesis. Let's look at the hostoria again first. So here we have the hostoria from daughter going into the stem of a host plant. And now we have mistletoe in the middle, and a parasitic vine on the right side of this slide. And the hostoria are marked with white arrows and you can clearly see how those hostoria are connecting the parasitic plant to its host. Now let's talk about structural reduction. So take a look again at Canophilus americana. So this is that small understory plant that uses oak hosts. The cream colored projections coming off of this plant are the flowers and the leaves aren't so easy to see because they've been reduced to scales. They're present underneath the flowers. Other parasitic plants from different groups have also lost structures like leaves. So on the left, we have a parasitic plant called jackal food. You've seen it before, and it doesn't have leaves either. Although jackal food and canophilus do have roots and they use them to connect to a host plant. And on the right, we have daughter and daughter also doesn't have apparent leaves because its leaves have been reduced to scales. And once daughter gets established on a host plant, its roots will rot away because it doesn't need them anymore. It's fully reliant upon a host. 
Photosynthesis has also convergently been reduced or lost by parasitic plants from these different groups. And that's why you don't see green tissue on these parasitic plants. So that brings us to our third and final learning objective, and that's to discuss the range of host dependence that we observe among parasitic plants. So the parasitic plants that can photosynthesize for themselves are known as hemiparasites. Some can live with or without a host. Those are facultative hemiparasites, but some photosynthetic hemiparasites do need a host to complete their life cycle, and they're called obligate hemiparasites. The parasites that have lost photosynthetic ability are fully reliant upon a host to get through their life cycle, so they're called obligate holoparasites. So pause for a minute and ask yourself this. Why would parasitic plants lose the ability to carry out photosynthesis? Photosynthesis generates sugars for the plant, so wouldn't it be really bad to lose the ability to photosynthesize? And as a follow-up question, what are some of the consequences of losing that ability to carry out photosynthesis? Well, it turns out that this loss of photosynthesis and this reduction or loss of certain structures fall into a phenomenon known as trait reduction. And trait reduction happens in parasites because if parasites can either carry out physiological processes and obtain resources for themselves, or they can rely on a host's physiological processes and steal resources from the host, well then, natural selection often stops maintaining those processes and structures in the parasite if it can rely on a host to meet its needs. And of course, the consequence of this is complete dependence upon a host. And we see this in diverse parasites from across the tree of life. So for example, on the left, we have a chlamydia bacterium. And these parasitic chlamydia bacteria cause these sexually transmitted infection known as chlamydia. And their genome, their entire collection of DNA, has likely been reduced by three quarters or more relative to non-parasitic ancestors. In the middle, we have a eukaryotic parasite known as microsporidium, and it has undergone genomic, structural, and metabolic reduction. And on the right, we have our familiar daughter plant. Let's take a closer look at daughter, and this time it's just at the seedling stage. So this daughter plant is emerging from a seed and it lacks some of the structures that we typically see in photosynthetic plants as they germinate. So on the right, we have a cartoon of the germination of a photosynthetic plant. And we can usually see a root and embryonic leaves called cotyledons emerging. But in daughter, those cotyledons are absent and the root may be absent as well. And remember that once daughter gets established on a host plant, its root rots away. So these parasites that are fully reliant upon a host have to adapt to that host, and the host can adapt in response. Now, some obligate parasitic plants, like Striga on the left, use hosts that are typically only around for a short time. So Striga parasitizes corn or maize, and it's usually only around for a single growing season. 
but other obligate parasitic plants like Canophilus on the right parasitize long-lived hosts like oak trees. So what adaptations do you think a parasite of annual or short-lived hosts would have? And what adaptations do you think a parasite of longer-lived hosts might have? Pause for a moment and consider that question. With that, we'll wrap up this lecture and we'll go through a quick recap of everything we discussed. So first of all, we got acquainted with parasitic plants and we saw diverse and amazing examples of parasitism in plants in groups that independently evolved to be parasitic. Then we saw some different cases of convergent evolution. Parasitism convergently evolved across the tree of life and in plants. And then we saw some adaptations that convergently evolved among parasitic plants as well. Then we discussed the range of host dependence that we see in parasitic plants, and we noted that some have to have a host to complete their life cycle. So before we end this, I have three final questions for you to consider. First of all, what environmental conditions might favor the evolution of parasitism in plants? Think about things like climate, resource availability, and the other plant and non-plant members of a particular community. Next, what unique challenges might parasitic plants face? Stealing from a host might seem like an easy way to get through life, but what are some of the difficulties that are associated with this lifestyle? And finally, what traits are parasites unlikely to lose? Another way to think about this is what traits could a host not compensate for if a parasite were to lose them? So that's it for today's lecture. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoyed this exploration of parasitism in plants. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.